can the book of Revelation really be understood amidst all the prophetic language and mysterious symbols? How is it relevant to the 21st century? What is the controversy between good and evil all about? How and when will it end? These and many other questions will be answered, providing amazing clarity to the conditions we see in our world today. This seminar will bring you face to face with Jesus in a new and wonderful way, leading you to the most momentous decisions of your life. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Revelation Prophecy Seminar and session number 19. This is an exciting topic and many, many people have speculated about what it means. So what are we going to learn in this session? Here are five discovery points that I think that you will think are interesting. Number one, we're going to cover Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to look at the two beasts and what powers are actually represented by those two beasts. So then we're going to go to what is the mark of the beast after we've established who the beasts are. We're going to look also at who will receive the mark and also look at when the mark is received. Finally, we're going to look at what role, if any, does the fourth commandment play in this end time scenario? Well, it seems that everybody has an opinion on the mark of the beast, and here are five modern views. Many commentators on the book of Revelation differ widely as to the exact nature of the mark of the beast, don't they? So some say it is a radio frequency identification device or a microchip. Others say the mark of the beast will be an ID card. Others say it's a vaccine passport. Others say it's a barcode actually tattooed into the flesh. Others say that it's, it's some other mark that identifies a person as being faithful to Antichrist's kingdom. So there's just a scattering of some of the modern views. It's a controversial area, but I tell you what, in God's word, it's not controversial. It's crystal clear. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask again that you will bless us as you've blessed us in the other 18 sessions with wisdom and understanding that the word of God might shine out in all its beauty and its glory through the power of the awesome Holy Spirit of God, we ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So friends, it's my pleasure to welcome you to session 19. It's entitled The Mark of the Beast. Let's get started. I'm suggesting in this session that you pretty much sit back and relax and enjoy the program. If you've done your study guide, those watching online can download it under the description bar. Um, if you haven't done it, you can, of course, follow along and put in the answers as we go. Let's get started. The most fearful, awesome, and shocking language in all the book of Revelation is used to describe the mark of the beast. To read how God describes the punishment for those who receive the mark of the beast in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, is enough to immediately put a sober look on any person's face. Revelation points out the following 
three points very specifically. Number one, any person who receives the mark of the beast is lost. Number two, the vast overwhelming majority of the people on this earth will actually receive the mark of the beast. And number three, the civil authorities will endeavour by starvation and death threats to compel people, to coerce people to receive the mark of the beast. God teaches in Revelation that all people on this earth are rapidly dividing into two groups. One group are following the God of heaven. The other group are following Satan, who is represented by the beast. Those who follow God will receive the sign or mark of God. We actually studied the sign or mark of God in an earlier session. You can refer back to session number 10. Those who follow Satan, represented by the beast, will receive the sign or mark of the beast. Tragically, unless a person knows for certain what the mark of the beast actually is, he will inevitably end up with the mark and not even be aware that he has it. Are you positive that you can really identify the mark of the beast? Anything less can cost you your life. This subject, unfortunately, may cut across something that you've once loved from childhood. But surely since God lovingly sends us a special message from Revelation on this subject, we will all be anxious to hear what he is saying and to accept and follow his counsel. And this is exactly what Jesus asks us to do in Revelation 1 and verse 3. So this most significant and magnificent subject is presented very clearly for us in Revelation chapter 13. So please now join me at the top of page two. Our first heading is The Beast of Revelation 13. Friends, what I love about this series of lessons is we're going to actually establish who the beast is before we try and unpack what the mark is. Let's go to question one. In order to identify the mark, we must first identify the beast in prophecy. And we're asked, what does a beast represent? Before we go to those particular texts, I want to remind you that people have come up with these different mark of the beast, but they've done it without identifying who the beast power is and matching that to the specifications and the clear indications of scripture. This Revelation Prophecy Seminar will do that in this session, number 19. And I want to thank you for joining us. So we are going first to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 23, because the little horn power of Daniel 7.23 also fits with the Antichrist and the beast power of Revelation chapter 13. The question was, in prophecy, what does a beast represent? Daniel tells us in Daniel 7 and verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. There's our answer. A beast stands for a kingdom. Is there any further evidence? There certainly is. We go to Jeremiah 50 and verse 17. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. 
first the king of Assyria hath devoured him, and last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Friends, there Israel is likened to a beast, which is a sheep, and of course Assyria and Babylon are likened to the beast, which is a lion. You know, God uses symbols and he uses memorable um, symbolic tools to help us to understand his word. What's our answer in prophecy? What does a beast represent? We're very clear in Daniel 7.23, the fourth beast actually stands for the fourth kingdom. It also stands for kings. The note says beasts in prophecy represent kingdoms, governments, or earthly ruling organizations. The term does not denote disrespect. It doesn't mean beastly characteristics. The description of each beast is a description of the government involved. So friends, I want to recommend to you a previous session, Prophecy Seminar uh, session number nine, where we studied in detail Daniel chapter seven. There on the screen, if you're not familiar with it, is the metal man of Daniel chapter two, and there are the four beasts of Daniel chapter seven, of which the little horn power comes out of pagan Rome. If you'd like some more details, I'm directing you back to the website, True Blue SDA, to Prophecy Seminar PS09 on the four beasts and the little horn power in Daniel 7. There's also a lesson there also on the mark of the beast, which is Prophecy Seminar Session 24. We're in question number two of our mark of the beast seminar session. According to Revelation 13.1, this beast with a mark comes up out of the sea. What does water represent in prophecy? Friends, we know this from previous lessons, but let's go back to Revelation 13 and verse 1. John writes, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. So friends, the first beast is very clearly a sea beast. What does the sea beast actually uh, come out of? Scripture interprets scripture in Revelation 17, 15, the waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues. There's our answer. What does water represent in prophecy? It actually represents people groups. So peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues, meaning different types of language groups. So friends, water in prophecy represents a populated area, such as in Daniel chapter 2. So friends, in Daniel chapter 2, the waters represented the 10 nations of Europe where this beast arose from. We're in Revelation 13. We're looking at question number three. Read Revelation 13, 1 to 8 and verse 18. Notice this beach, beast, which has a mark that I must not receive, has eight pronounced characteristics. On exhibit one, we've listed these eight points and identified the power they describe. Please study this exhibit carefully before going on to the next question. So friends, we're looking at the rise of the beast with the number 666. So here are our exhibits, exhibit one for lesson 19 
identifying the beast of Revelation 13, 1 to 8. We're going to identify the beast before we would try and biblically to unpack and interpret what the mark is. If you're watching online, you might like to pause this and read that through, but I will be reading it through now and giving the answers directly. So friends, this beast has eight points of identification. Let's review them. I go to part one there on the blue sheet on the left at the top of the page. We're looking at identifying the beast of Revelation 13, and we find out this beast would receive its power, seat, and great authority. I know that you've had time to study this uh, for homework, and so we're just going to go through the answers because this is a huge lesson with a lot of material. So how would this beast receive its power, seat, and great authority, and who would it receive it from? Let me share with you the historical application and understanding of these words of Revelation 13 and verse 2. The dragon, see Revelation 12, 3, 4, and 9, though primarily representing Satan, also represents pagan Rome, whom Satan used to try to destroy Jesus when King Herod, a Roman ruler, killed all the babies of Bethlehem in Matthew 2, 16 to 18. History is clear that the papacy received its power, authority, and capital city from old pagan Rome. This quote from history is typical. The Roman church pushed itself into the place of the Roman world empire, of which it is the actual continuation. The Pope is Caesar's successor. So friends, obviously the papacy, which is the institution of all the popes, fits very easily point number one. Let me give you an extra quote, not in our lesson. To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine, meaning the Emperor Constantine, left Rome to set up Constantinople in the east, he gave his seat to the pontiff, who was the chief bishop of Rome. That's from La Bianca, professor of history in the University of Rome. Let's go to point number two. We're identifying the beast of Revelation 13. This beast would become a something wide power. In Revelation 3 and verse 7, it would become against all odds a worldwide power. None would dispute that during the Middle Ages, the papacy was indeed a worldwide power. So once again, the papacy fits the identification. In point number three, the Bible tells us how long this power would rule. So it helps us to identify it precisely and not make any mistakes. So it would rule for exactly 42 months. What does the 42 months mean? Well, if you've been doing this series with us, you will absolutely know. Let me explain more on the screen. Remember that in prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. We know that from Ezekiel 4, 6 and from Numbers 14 and verse 34. So the time of the papacy's rule is repeatedly referred to in prophecy as 1260 days, 42 months, or three and a half years. All equal the same thing, 1260 prophetic days or 1260 literal years. Friends, did you know the power of the papacy became supreme in Christendom 
in 538 AD due to the letter of the Roman Emperor Justinian, which acknowledged the Bishop of Rome as the head of all the churches. This letter became part of Justinian's code, the fundamental law of the empire. The power and status of the papacy reached its lowest ebb in 1798 AD, when Napoleon's general, Berthier, took the Pope captive and he died in exile. Please note that in 538 AD to 1798 AD is exactly 1260 years as prophecy predicted. Again, the papacy fits the identification point exactly. No other power could possibly fit this point. Friends, most earthly powers are lucky to reign a few years. I think the Roman Empire around 600 plus years. This power specifically reigned for over 1,000 years. There are few earthly powers to rival it. And so this power reigned for 1,260 days or 1,260 years. We're identifying the beast of Revelation 13. The first beast, it would be guilty of something in Revelation 13, verses 5 and 6. It would be guilty of blasphemy. This is incredible because it's a religious power. Friends, did you know that the Bible defines blasphemy as, number one, claiming to be God, John 10, 33, and number two, claiming power to forgive sins, Luke 5 and verse 21. Once again, the papacy fits the identification point. Now, what is blasphemy? Let me share with you on the screen. The Bible defines blasphemy as assuming any rights or power that belong to God alone. So, friends, very clearly, this power actually claims to forgive sins. From a catechism, we note the following. Does the priest truly forgive the sins or does he only declare that they are remitted? Answer, in the Catholic Catechism, the priest really does, and the priest does truly and really and truly forgive the sins in virtue of the power given to him by Jesus Christ. So, friends, what is this Mark 2 and verse 7? This is what was said about Jesus. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? What's the biblical definition? Who can forgive sins but God only? So I think that's very, very clear. So friends, is it possible to deduce a pattern of blasphemy over the centuries through the Church of Rome? Here is a quote not in the study guides. The popes, like Jesus, are conceived by their mothers through the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost. All popes are a certain species of man-gods for the purpose of being the better able to conduct the functions of mediator between God and mankind. All powers in heaven and earth are given to them. Friends, for any man or system to claim that their birth is the product of the literal intervention of the Holy Spirit is a high claim. Some would say blasphemy. Why is that? The scripture says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is only one God and one mediator between God and men. That is the man, Christ Jesus. That's a very, very important point. The second point is that this beast power, the sea beast of Revelation 13, 
1 to 10, actually claims to be God. Some of the titles it claims are, Thou art another God on earth. Another one is, The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. Friends, what is blasphemy according to Scripture in John 10.33? The Jews answered Jesus saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, maketh thyself God. Friends, blasphemy is a very, very serious charge, especially from an organization that claims to be religious. Did you know that God's name is sacred and holy? Think about the third commandment. But before we go there, let's look at some of the scriptures that warn us about the use of God's name. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 9, and call no man father upon the earth. He's not talking about our dads. He's saying, for one is your father which is in heaven. He's speaking about our spiritual father in the kingdom of heaven. In John 17, 11, Jesus said, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. So we are not to call earthly spiritual representatives Holy Father. And then in Psalm 111, verse 9, King David wrote, He sent redemption unto his people, Holy and reverent is his name. So I don't believe the word reverent should be used in front of anyone's title. Friends, this is a serious issue. Are we overdoing it? I don't think so. The third commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Friends, some titles of the Pope. Firstly, our Lord God, the Pope. Friends, this is not a title for any man on earth. Another title, Vice Regent or Vicar of Jesus Christ. Friends, another title, Thou art another God on earth. Friends, what did the commandment say? The first commandment very clearly warned us, Thou shalt have no other God's before me. These claims are absolutely surprising. Pope Leo XIII said, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. So to stand in the place of someone is to be in the place of God. And so antichrist often means to stand in the place of or against Christ. And so that is the tradition here of blasphemy. We need to ask the question, this is not covered in the study guides, why does the Church of Rome actually do this? Friends, I think you have to understand their relationship to Scripture and history. Let's go to one of their own quotes. The book Catholic Belief, page 33, by Joseph Farr de Bruno. How did the Church of Rome get her teachings and doctrines? Quote, like two sacred rivers, Flowing from paradise, the Bible and divine tradition contain the word of God. Though these two divine streams are of equal sacredness, still of the two, tradition is to us more clear and safe. 
Friends, this religious organization says that if it has to weigh up the importance of scripture and tradition, that tradition is to us more clear and safe. Tradition to them is the safer option, meaning tradition will go above the word of God. We're in section number five, identifying the beast of Revelation 13. This beast would receive a deadly something, a deadly wound, which would heal. Then the entire world would follow him. We find that in Revelation 13 and verse 3. Friends, historically, how did this take place? The papacy was dealt what appeared to be a death blow when in 1798, Napoleon's general Berthier took the Pope captive and he died in exile. Half of Europe thought that the papacy had ended with this event. Let me just read it to you. In 1798, he, Berthier, made his entrance into Rome. He abolished the papal government and established a secular one from the Encyclopedia Americana. Friends, it's interesting that the papacy was opposing the French Revolution and the destruction of religion, and so the French came down and removed the Pope from his position. Half of Europe thought that the papacy had ended with this event. So God, however, was on record that the wound would be healed and that the influence of the papacy would grow till all the world followed her leading. Friends, on the screen, you might be wondering, how did the deadly wound heal and how did Rome come back into power after Pope Pius VI was taken captive and there were no more popes? This is the San Francisco Chronicle. It there shows us that Mussolini and Gasparri signed a historic Roman pact. To quote the newspaper, the Roman question whether the Church of Rome were going to get their power back and their lands and their authority. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy in affixing the autographs to the memorable document, Healing the Wound. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Friends, the wording here is remarkable. What's this healing the wound? I believe the writer here in the newspaper is echoing Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, this is the sea beast in Revelation 13, as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered or marveled or followed after the beast. The note says, even a novice recognises today that the papacy is, in many ways, the most influential power on earth. And with each trip of Pope Francis, the papacy's influence and power increases. In fact, multiplied millions from all over the world look to the papacy today as the only hope for world unity, love, peace and decency. Precisely as God predicted, all the world would wonder, marvel, and follow the beast. So again, the papacy fits this specific identification point. We're looking at point number six and identifying the beast of Revelation 13. This beast would have the mystic number in Revelation 13 and verse 18 of 666. Revelation 13, 17, and 18 says to count the number of the beast's name and that it's the number of a man. Let's have a look at the scripture. Here is wisdom, John the Revelator writes, let him that hath understanding count 
the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 600, three score and six. A score in scripture is always 20. 600, three twenties and six is 666. Friends, the beast is a system, but it's headed up by a man and his number is 666. The man we think of when the papacy is mentioned is the Pope. What is his actual name? Well, one of the Pope's official titles is Vicar of the Son of God, which in Latin is Vicarius Filii Dei. Often newspaper articles when referring to the Pope as Vicar of Christ will enclose the words in quotation marks because they are a translation of his title or name. The book of Revelation is saying that the Roman numeral uh, value of the letters of his name will equal 666. Let's see if it does. So, friends, you've probably taken time to read that quote from a reputable dictionary to show you that the numbers uh, the numerals stand for actual numbers. So, friends, here's a key to the mystic number, Vicarious Filii Dei, or Vicar of the Son of God. It's a formal Latin title of the leading man of the papal system. Certain letters of the Latin alphabet had numerical value, and it's significant that numerical equivalent of the above title comes to a total of 666. So the papacy's title, Vicarious Filii Dei, Vicarious adds up to 112, Filii adds up to 53, and Dei adds up to 501, giving us a total of 666. Now, I was thinking, as perhaps some of you did this study, you were thinking this could be a one-off, this could be a spatial anomaly, to use uh, Star Trek language, it could be a coincidence. So we need at least six titles for the Pope, which will verify this to be true. So let's refresh our memories. I stands for one, V stands for five, X stands for 10, L stands for 50, C stands for 100, D stands for 500, M stands for 1000. About the only time you'll see those Latin symbols, meaning those Latin numbers, is at the end of a movie, when it'll be MCM, etc. So friends, the first title of the Pope is Vicar of the Son of God, and Vicarious Filii Day comes to 666. Is there another title? There certainly is. Let's have a look at a second one. This is Captain of the Clergy, a Latin title which is expressed this way. Captain of the Clergy is Dux Clerae, head of the clerics, head of the clergy, head of the ministers. It totals 666. Is there a third example? There certainly is. A chief vicar of the court of Rome in the Latin, Ludo Vicious, Ludo Vicious or Ludo Vicus. Ludo Vicus comes also to 666. Is there a fourth title? If we go to the Greek, let's look at Italian church showing you that this gematria work in just about any language. Italian church in the Greek, Italica Ecclesia. And once again, it comes to 
the mystic number 666. Is there a fifth example? Latin kingdom in the Greek, Helotene Basilia also reads 666. Friends, the Latin kingdom, the Italian kingdom is the heart of the Church of Rome. What about Latin-speaking man in the Greek? Latinos also comes to the mystic number 666. There are six examples of the names associated with this man. And so, friends, it's very, very clear. You might be interested about Satan's number in the Greek. His name in the Greek is Titan, T-E-I-T-A-N. This number, uh, when added up, comes to 666. So, friends, when we're understanding 666, we need to remember that throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven always represents perfection or completeness. Now, the number six always represents falling short of perfection. And so six represents always imperfection. So let us have a look now at the name of Jesus to be more positive. Jesus' name in the Greek is the name Jesus. And I'm assuming that you are guessing that his numbers would come to what? Please speak it out. I believe, as I have the gift of prophecy, that some of you have said 777. Let's have a look. Jesus' name in the Greek is Jesus, and his number comes to 888. How can we understand that? Friends, do you remember the text in Philippians 2 and verse 9? Wherefore God hath highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every other name. Jesus' number is 888 because his number is above perfection. It's interesting, friends, that the uh, Chinese people whose uh, writing is very similar to the Hebrew, and some say a derivative of the Hebrew, that they understand that the number eight is a very, very special number. So let's summarize these numerals. 666 can stand for Satan. It can stand for sinful man created on the sixth day. It can stand for sin. It can stand for the man of sin, and it can also stand for the beast from which the mark comes. Meanwhile, 777 stands for perfection. It also stands for God's eternal seventh-day Sabbath. And then 888 is the number above perfection, and that is very fittingly Jesus' name. Friends, you may be thinking that this lesson is heading in an unfortunate direction. Are we in harmony with the Protestant view of the Antichrist, the little horn power, the beast of Revelation 13, and the man of sin? We absolutely are. Are we standing in the Protestant historical Reformation view of the Antichrist, the little horn power, the beast, and the man of sin? Yes, we are absolutely standing in the Protestant view. Let me share with you this quote from Michael D. Semlin's All Roads Lead to Rome, page 205. Here are the reformers' names, quote, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Cramner, in the 17th century Bunyan, 
the translators of the King James Bible, and the men who published the Westminster and Baptist Confessions of Faith, Sir Isaac Newton, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and more recently Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, Bishop J.C. Ryle, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. These men, among countless others, all saw the office of the papacy as the Antichrist. End of quote. In his book, All Roads Lead to Rome, page 205. We're at the top, top of page three and point number seven in our exhibit number one in session number 19. Thank you so much for joining us. So would the beast, the sea beast of Revelation 13, be a religious power? It absolutely is a religious power. Therefore, it would be involved in worship. It's not a secular power. It's a religious power. Let's go to the note. This power is not a secular government, but is involved in spiritual matters. The word worship is used four times in Revelation 13. In fact, the chapter is about false worship. Again, the papacy fits the identification point. So friends, no one would argue that today. The papacy has gained a worldwide influence of prestige and prominence, and today all the world wanders after the beast because this power now has embraced the climate change religion of these last days. Point number eight, this power would eventually war with and persecute who? The saints, God's true people. Friends, how did this actually happen? It's common knowledge that the papacy did persecute and destroy conscientious Christians, especially during the peak of its period of control during the Middle Ages. Many historians say that more than 50 million people died for their faith during this period of great tribulation. The church felt it was doing God a favor in stampering out heretics and heresy. But the fact remains that it did persecute and destroy. Many modern Catholics disapprove of these terrible persecutions, but the papacy fits this point also. I have a quote that uh, is outside of the lesson I'd like to share with you here. John Dowling's History of Romanism, page 541. From the birth of popery to the present time, it is, a, it is estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 millions of the human family have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by popish persecutors. An average of more than 40,000 religious murders for every year of the existence of popery. Friends, that record of history is not easily done away with. So, friends, there may be two sides to some questions, but there's only one side here. The sea beast of Revelation 18, 1 to 8 and 18 represents the papacy. And this power has a mark that I dare not receive. Now, let us give you a very, very important disclaimer. I want to tell you that I believe and I know there are very many beautiful, sweet, loving Roman Catholic Christians who serve Jesus gladly and whom Jesus Christ counts as his children. In fact, Pope Francis himself seems to be a warm, gracious, congenial, courageous person who loves God.
This lesson is not an attack upon our Christian Catholic friends. It's an attack upon Satan, the devil, who's responsible for the entire miserable affair on this planet Earth. It's true, however, that God himself has told us that this system has a mark which we dare not receive. And you must remember that Babylon's a system and it does not refer and condemn the people within. Sincere Protestants, Catholics, Jews and the unchurched will all be anxious to discover what this mark is so that they can avoid receiving it. We thank God that he has in the book of Revelation uncovered Satan's ugly plans to destroy us all. So, friends, that is uh, the end of this uh, exhibit number one. And now we go back to our lesson, the beast mark of authority, and we are in question number four. Since we have now positively identified the beast as the papacy, let's permit the papacy to tell us what its mark is and let's read exhibit number two. So I'm directing your attention back to the screen. The papacy speaks for itself. Well, one day a man picked up Peter Gierman's Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine and read the following on page 50. The Church of Rome says, in question and answer form, which is the Sabbath day? Rome answers, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Friends, I just want to pause there and just remind you that many Protestant Christians argue that the new day of worship is the first day of the week, the day of the sun, Sunday. But friends, the Church of Rome are very, very honest and they very clearly state Saturday is the original and still is the Bible Sabbath day. So the question is, which is the Sabbath day? They answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question in the Catechism, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Their answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Well, the man was so dumbfounded and supposed there must be some mistake, so he wrote a letter to the then famous James Cardinal Gibbons of Baltimore and asked if the Catholic Church did indeed change the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. The Cardinal replied, of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. Friends, that's a very, very significant statement. It's not one I've made up. This comes from the Church of Rome and they claim that the change from Sabbath to Sunday, from Saturday to Sunday, the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week, is a mark of her ecclesiastical or church power and their authority in religious matters that they have the power to actually change that. Notice also the following words from the Catholic record of London, Ontario, Canada, September 1, 1923, another one of the quotes from the Church of Rome. They said, Sunday is our mark of authority. Interesting wording. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is a proof of that fact. Friends, any church that claims to be above the Bible is on dangerous ground, I believe, and is sailing pretty close to blasphemy. God's word is supreme. 
it's unchanging. And friends, it is the word of God, which brings us life. God has his written word. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is the living word of God. And so friends, this church says it's above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact that they had the power to change it. Notice this from a doctrinal catechism by Stephen Keenan. Question, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept? Had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. Friends, the claims that the Church of Rome makes are breathtaking. Some radical Protestants would say that they are out and out blasphemy. I will let you determine your response. But friends, I want to share with you now another quote that's not actually contained in the study guides. This comes from St. Catherine's Catholic Church Sentiment. It's a recent quote from May 21, 1995. Let's quote, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Friends, it's a remarkable, isn't it? But if you want to follow the Bible and the Bible alone, the Church of Rome says very clearly that if you're going to follow the Bible and let that be your sole authority, then you should keep Saturday holy and that the people who do that best are logically the Seventh-day Adventists. Friends, the papacy claims that it changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday and that Sunday keeping or Sunday is its mark of authority and power. But what about God's mark? God's mark or sign of power is Sabbath and Sabbath keeping, and the beast sign or mark of power is Sunday and Sunday keeping. Let me ask you a question. Which side are you choosing to be on? On the side of God's seventh-day Sabbath, as supported by the scriptures, or to knowingly keep Sunday, a man-made day, and receive the mark of the church of Rome's authority. So let's summarize what we're saying. It's a simple choice. A simple choice between the seventh-day Sabbath, the day of perfection, with the first day of the week, the sixth day, the one that falls short of perfection and equals rebellion. For the first day of the week was dedicated to the sun god. It's the day of the sun. Sunday. So we have to ask ourselves every time, are we going to follow the beast in Revelation 14.9 or are we going to worship the creator as in Revelation 14 and verse 7? Would you join me in heading number three, halfway down page two in our study guide? 
Let's look at the attempted change of God's law. How did this actually happen? And we go to question number five. It seems incredible that the papacy has been able to change the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday and have virtually the entire world follow. Did the papacy really change God's fourth commandment Sabbath to Sunday? Or did they only think that they changed it? We go back to Daniel 7 and verse 25. Daniel wrote, and he, the little horn power, shall speak great words against the most high. Friends, those great words were words of blasphemy, and we've covered that. This power would wear out the saints of the high. It means to rub them out, to persecute them, to destroy them. We have evidence of that. More than 50 million massacred. And this power would think it could change God's times and laws. When you look at the Ten Commandments, which of the Ten Commandments center on time? Only the Fourth Commandment, the Seventh-day Sabbath. And what laws did Rome change? We will show you shortly which laws it changed and which it did away with and which it reconfigured. Then is this really the Church of Rome? For this power, the little horn power, would rule and reign, and they, God's people, the saints, would be given into his hand during the Dark Ages until a time, 360 years, times 720 years, and the dividing of times, which is 180, which adds up to 1260 days or 1260 years. We're asking the question, did the papacy really change God's fourth commandment, Sabbath to Sunday, or did they only think they changed it? Friends, according to scripture, they only thought that they changed it because in heaven is the ark of the testimony. The ark of the testimony, the ark of the covenant is there and God's 10 commandment law is in that golden box. And I want to tell you that the fourth commandment has not been chiseled out. It's not been modified. It's not been changed. The church of Rome has thought that it can change God's times and laws, but it cannot for the 10 commandments have not been altered in heaven heaven does not recognize this change daniel 7 is a parallel prophecy to revelation 13 the message is clear the papacy only thought a change had been made the sabbath of the commandment is still binding sunday is not a holy day Friends, we need to remember the words of Joshua in Joshua 24, 15. Choose ye this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're in question six at the bottom of page two. What was God's criticism of his priests and pastors in ancient times in the Old Testament? In Malachi 2, 7 to 9, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, but ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 9 of Malachi 2, therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Friends, what was God's criticism of his priests and pastors in ancient times? God said, you've caused many to stumble at the law. You've not kept my ways, but have been partial in my law. You know, friends, it's interesting today that people are happy to do away with God's Ten Commandments, reconfigure them and cut and hack them. 
and say they've been done away with at the cross. But if you're pulled over by the traffic police and you tell them, oh, I don't think that law applies to me and you've been speeding, it's interesting that if you've been partial in keeping the law, there are still penalties for the law is still in effect. Friends, in Malachi 3.6, we're told that God doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13.8. Our God is still hurt when religious leaders are partial to the nine commandments and cause people to stumble over his Sabbath command. Question seven, how did the people in Hosea's day regard the great things of God's law in Hosea 8 and verse 12? Pretty much the same. I've written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a what? A strange thing. There's our answer. So, friends, the people in Hosea's day, they weren't keeping God's law. In fact, anyone keeping God's law was called or counted as a strange thing. So is it any surprise that things haven't changed? If you decide to keep the great holy Sabbath of God's law, people will still consider it a strange thing. So, friends, I want you to think about this. Are you worried about being ridiculed on earth? Because if you are, you need to think about the fact that if you're ridiculed on earth by following God's word, you will be praised in heaven. God bless you if you choose that. Question number eight, God said that the religious leaders in Ezekiel's day were profaning holy things. Putting no difference between profane and holy things and showing no difference between the clean and the unclean. What specifically did he have in mind in Ezekiel 22 and verse 26? Her priests have violated my law and have profaned or defiled mine holy things. They've put no difference between the holy and the profane, meaning the pagan. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, God says, and I am profaned among them. What specifically did God have in mind? What were they doing in Ezekiel's day? They had hidden their eyes from God's Sabbaths. Notice he calls them my Sabbaths. Friends, did you realize it's still happening today? Many religious leaders say there's no difference between Sabbath and Sunday or any day will do if you're sincere. But God still says, Thou hast despised mine holy things and hast profaned my Sabbaths in Ezekiel 22.8. He also says he will pour out his indignation in Ezekiel 22.31 upon those who say, Thus saith the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken, Ezekiel 22.28. To claim that God says Sunday is a holy day when God has indeed ordained the Sabbath is a very serious matter which God will not and cannot overlook. We're going to question nine. What did God say about attempts to change his word or his law in any way? We're going to uh, three texts here. Let's start with Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2. God said in regard to his word, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught or anything from it that ye may keep the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you. What did God say about attempting to change his law? Don't add to it and don't take away from it a single thing. 
Secondly, if we add to his word, he counts me as something and something will pass away before the Lord will f- the law will fail. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6, every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Then in Luke 16, 17, and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. We've studied this before when we talked about a jot or a tittle, the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. Friends, if we add to God's word, we'll be counted as liars. Secondly, it's more likely that heaven and earth will pass away sooner than for one tittle or a crossing of a T of the law to fail. That shows us that God does not authorize anybody to change his law. We're at the top of page four where the popular churches are embarrassed. Friends, when we ask the papacy, How could you change God's holy law? They're embarrassed or challenged, but the response is even more embarrassing to Protestants. How are the Protestant churches embarrassed? We're going to exhibit number three in lesson 19. The papacy asks a question. Here is the famous question which the papacy has repeatedly asked Protestants, and Protestants have remained strangely silent. Let's listen closely to what the Church of Rome has said. You will tell me that Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath, but that the Christian Sabbath has been changed to Sunday. Changed? But by whom, Rome says? Who has authority to change an express commandment of Almighty God? When God has spoken and said, Thou shalt keep holy the seventh day, who shall dare to say, Nay, thou mayest work and do all manner of worldly business on the seventh day, but thou shalt keep holy the first day in its stead? This is a most important question, which I know not how you can answer. You are a Protestant and you profess to go by the Bible and the Bible only. And yet in so important a matter as the observance of one day and seven as a holy day, you go against the plain letter of the Bible and put another day in the place of that which he has commanded. The command to keep holy the seventh day is one of the Ten Commandments. You believe the other nine are still binding. Who gave you the authority to tamper with the fourth? If you are consistent with your own principle, if you really follow the Bible and the Bible only, you ought to be able to produce some portion of the New Testament in which this fourth commandment is expressly altered. End of quote from the Church of Rome. Taken from the Library of Christian Doctrine, Burns and Oates, page three and four, London. Friends, but as we study before, virtually all churches admit in their official writings that there is no scripture for Sunday sacredness. So Protestantism, those who protest against the Church of Rome, they stand guilty before the judgment bar of God of throwing out the Bible Sabbath. God himself gave this Sabbath as a sign or a mark of his power to create and his power to sanctify or save, see Exodus 31, 17 and Ezekiel 20 and verse 12. Dare any man tamper with this sacred sign which represents the great God of heaven and all that he stands for? So friends, has any man dared to tamper with this sacred sign? The answer is yes. Let's have a look at the Ten Commandments. God's Ten Commandments compared with the Ten Commandments, which are the Roman Church's Ten Rules. 
Firstly, when we go to God's Ten Commandments, we notice a massive commandment number four, giving us all the details about the seventh-day Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it you shall do no work. What has Rome done to that? Well, friends, Rome has reduced that by making it commandment number three to just seven words. Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Does it tell you which day is the Sabbath day? Which day is the Lord's day? No, it doesn't. All the descriptors have been removed because the Church of Rome have changed it from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. What other changes were made in God's Ten Commandment law? The second commandment that says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any graven image has been done away with. And so over here in Roman Church's Ten Rules, commandment number two has been ripped out of the heart of the Ten Commandments as written by the Church of Rome. It's gone. And so they've made the third commandment about taking God's name in vain their second commandment. Well, now that they're one short by taking out the second commandment, how do they make up for that? Well, if you look at God's Ten Commandments, they take out the law, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and they make that commandment number nine. And then they make you shall not covet your neighbor's house, commandment number 10, thereby replacing commandment number two that was destroyed. I'll read the note one more time. Dare any man tamper with this sacred sign, referring to the Seventh-day Sabbath, which represents the great God of heaven and all that he stands for. Friends, it's worse than that. The fourth commandment contains in it the seal of God. You've either got the seal of God or you're going to have the mark of the beast. There's only two choices. Scripture doesn't offer a third path. Let's review again Exhibit 3 from Lesson 11 if you have time. It's a brief report of what other churches say on this subject. Finally, friends, some extra material. On the screen, does the Church of Rome have power to command Sabbath and feast days? How prove you that the Church has power to command feasts and holy days? This is from the Abridgment of Christian Doc Doctrine. More questions from Rome. Rome answers by the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants allow of. So Rome says, we change the day. You're fine with it. You keep our day. But you therefore fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. So, friends, Rome is saying that Protestants allow for Sunday sacredness, but, friends, Rome changed the day, and they're really keeping Rome's day, but they neglect the other Roman Catholic feasts and rest days. So that's the end of the section, Exhibit 3, The Papacy Asks a Question. We're looking now at heading number five, and we're looking at how is the mark received? We're halfway down page four. So we need to know where is the beast mark placed on people? We're going to Revelation 13 and verse 16. Where is this mark of the beast placed? And he, the second beast, causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, everyone, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads or foreheads. Where is the beast mark placed on people? It's placed in their right hand or in their foreheads or foreheads. Friends, 
the mark is not literal, remember we're dealing with symbols. So is the mark of the beast literal or symbolic? Friends, we're dealing with a symbolic beast. It's not a real beast. We're dealing with a symbolic image. It's not a real image. We're dealing with a symbolic name. We're dealing with a symbolic number. We're dealing with a symbolic seal, and we're dealing with a symbolic mark. Now, let me just pause and ask you a question. Why isn't the mark of the beast a literal mark? Well, friends, let's consider it. Revelation 14, 9 and 11. If any man worship the beast, so worship's involved with this mark. If any man worship the beast and his image, so the mark is involved with worship and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Friends, I want to tell you that this is a symbolic mark, not a literal mark. Why do I say that? Let's imagine the mark is literal and is imposed against our will. Imagine that you are held down and branded. If you and I were held down and branded against our will, if this is true, then we are all lost. Therefore, the mark can't be a literal mark at all. We'd be lost. So friends, what does it mean to receive a mark in the forehead? Friends, the frontal area of the brain, as we've discussed earlier in session 10, contains the decision-making parts of the brain where reason, willpower, and judgment are decided. So friends, it is here, the forehead, where the seal of God, which is keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, the sign of the creator, and the decision to get the mark of the beast, the power of an earthly power who changed God's law, they are both symbolic. So friends, if you have a look at those things that are suggested now to be literally the mark of the beast, whether they are chips or credit cards or some other thing, an ID card, then friends, that can't be true because these literal symbols are not the mark of the beast. But what might be challenging and confusing is that maybe they are the means of enforcing the no buying and no selling rules that we know that are coming. It's worth a thought. Friends, the mark is not literal. Remember, we are dealing with symbols. The forehead always represents the mind with which we serve God. See Romans 7.25. And of course, the hand is a symbol of work. Ecclesiastes 9.10. Those who accept Sunday observance willingly are marked in the forehead. Those who agree to work Sabbath to avoid boycott or death are marked in the hand. So let's take a moment to discuss this. If you receive the mark in your hand, you're willing to work on Sabbath to avoid civil penalties um, for being a Sabbath keeper. So friends, I believe that this might have already happened, one of these tests. And so when the vaccine passport came, some said yes out of conviction in their mind. They believed in it and they had full confidence in it. But some said yes out of coercion. And so they went along as symbolized by a handshake or by the hand. 
Friends, did you know that God's seventh day Sabbath contains his seal, the seal of God? We discussed this in session number 10. His name is there, the Lord God. His title, heaven and earth. His territory, the heaven and earth. And sorry, his title is that he's the maker of heaven and earth and the creator. His territory is that he is the God of the heavens and the earth. Friends, the Sabbath has four important points. It's the rest day. It's the blessed day, the only day he blessed. It's the best day, but it's also the test day. And so in the end times, it'll be a test just as it was in Exodus chapter 16, when God's people came out of Egypt after the Exodus. The Sabbath was a test and God said, how long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? Have a look in Exodus chapter 16 at the end of that chapter. So, friends, we're looking at how the mark is received, and we're in question 12. Do people who now observe Sunday as a holy day have the mark of the beast? Revelation 13, 16, and 17. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Do people who now observe Sunday as a holy day have the mark of the beast? No, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark. Friends, let's answer this question directly. Does anyone have the mark of the beast today? The answer is absolutely no. No one can receive the mark of the beast until specific legislation is either enforced or has to be legislated thereby enforcing a day of worship on the newly mandated substitute Sunday Sabbath. It's interesting today that with the new climate change religion, this seems to be where we are heading. Uh, have a look online for Green Sunday events and the Green Sabbath project. Friends, it looks like that we are going to be shut down on the first day of the week for environmental reasons. And I believe people will be encouraged to have family time together and they will also be encouraged to worship the Lord and return to the worship of God. Friends, no one has the mark of the beast now. No one will be marked until the law forces a person to stop buying and selling unless he has the mark. When it becomes a major issue and men are forced to decide for either the mark of God or the mark of the beast, then those who work on Sabbath or observe Sunday as a holy day will be marked. Sabbath breaking today, however, even today is a very serious matter because it involves sin. See 1 John 3, 4. Those who knowingly profane God's holy day now will lose the ability to think and see clearly and will end up in darkness. See John 12 and verse 35. Friends, in these last days, God's commanded his angels to hold back the winds of strife from the earth until something happens to his people. What is that something? We go to the angels that are holding back the winds of strife in Revelation 7, 1 to 3. This, of course, leads on to the seven last plagues that we will study in a few sessions time. Don't miss it. After these things, John writes, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. So it's north, south, east and west, the four corners, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Friends, we're to be sealed in our minds, not a literal mark on the outside, but a God mark and decision and desire to follow him all the way on the inside. In these last days, God's commanded his angels to hold back the winds of strife from the earth till something happens to his people. What is that something? Hurt not the earth with the seven last plagues to have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. What does this mean? God is holding back devastating destruction from the earth until his people receive his sign, his seal or his mark, which is his seventh day Sabbath. Soon every person on earth will be in one of two groups, God's group with his Sabbath mark or the beast group with his counterfeit Sunday mark. The Holy Spirit is working with almost desperation to clearly show people that loyalty to God is involved here and to impress them to accept God's Sabbath mark, which represents his creative and redemptive power. Friends, it's not enough to claim that we serve God. We must also prove it by obeying him. See Luke 6 and verse 46. Question 14, who will receive God's wrath in the last days? Revelation 14, 9 and 10. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Friends, in our next session, session 20, we're going to look at hell fire. We're going to look at this destruction of the wicked. Who will receive God's wrath in the last days? Those who receive the what? Those who receive the mark of the beast. Friends, do you realize that God's wrath is contained in the seven last plagues? And these are what we will study soon in lesson that's coming. See Revelation 15.1 and Revelation 16.1 and 2. These are seven serious and devastating punishments, and we will cover it in session 22. It's a very exciting lesson. Don't miss it. Let's go to our sixth heading, a test of loyalty. How does God decide who it is that we are to serve? We go to Romans 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, Paul writes to the church in Rome, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. How does God decide who it is we serve? His servants ye are to whom ye ye obey. Friends, God chooses to save everybody, 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. But the devil desperately wants everyone to be lost. We choose whom we serve by whom we obey, Joshua 24, 15. I obey God and serve him by accepting his mark. It is not a matter of days, but rather a question of loyalty to Christ or the Antichrist, which is another name for the beast. God's Sabbath is like a banner or flag. When I obey him, I step up under his Sabbath banner. When I, with my eyes wide open, step up under the Sunday banner of the beast, God counts me as actually serving the beast. I'm going to ask you today, who are we really worshipping? It will come down to the day 
on which we worship. We either keep the beautiful biblical seventh-day Sabbath or we keep the day of the sun, the first day of the week, the day called Sunday. Question number 16, how does God count me if I'm neutral? So I'm not going to keep Sabbath or Sunday. Matthew 12 and verse 30, he that is not with me, Jesus said, is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. How does God count me if I'm neutral? Jesus said very clearly, he that is not with me is against me. Friends, we can't sit on the fence on this one. It's an electric fence. We've got to go one way or the other. All right, let's go on to question number 17. According to Revelation 13, 11, John saw another second beast rise up out of the earth about the same time that the first beast of verse 1 went into captivity. See verse 10. Whom do you think this second beast represents? Friends, this is a huge study. Not only are we doing the mark of the beast, but we're doing the sea beast, and now we're doing the land beast, the second beast. Let's dive into this now. Let's have a look at Revelation 13 and verse 11. Here is the second beast. And I behold another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now notice this birth, this second beast comes out, out up out of where? He comes up out of the earth. But where did the first beast of Revelation 13 come up out of? And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. So who is the first beast? Friends, the first beast comes out of a peopled area. It comes up out of the United States of Europe, the 10 nations of Europe. See Daniel chapter 2, the 10 toes. See Daniel chapter 7, the 10 horns are the 10 nations of Europe. And friends, this power comes out of this area, the Church of Rome. So friends, you'll notice that the first beast, the sea beast, is very simply a European power, and therefore it must be the Church of Rome. Now we go to Revelation 13 and verse 10. This beast, the first beast, the sea beast, leads God's people into captivity. But this beast, who sacrificed them and persecuted and killed them, shall also go into captivity. Did that happen? For he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. So, friends, do we know if the first beast, the sea beast, the Church of Rome, ever went into captivity? Absolutely. And so Pope Pius VI was taken captive by the French general, Napoleon's general Berthier in the year 1798 AD. But in 1798 AD, the first beast was declining just as the second beast, the land beast, was arising. So we have the first beast as the Church of Rome. But who is this second beast? Let's find out. God's word will tell us. Revelation 13 verse 11. And I beheld another beast, a second beast, coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Friends, the first beast came out of the sea, a populated area. The second beast came out of the earth, a sparsely populated area. Who could that beast be? Well, many commentators have advanced and identified it as the United States of America. 
According to Revelation 13, 11, John saw another second beast rise up out of the earth about the same time as the first beast, the sea beast of verse 1, went into captivity. See verse 10. Whom do you think this second beast represents? Friends, it has to represent the United States of America. No other country except the United States can fit here. It came up from an uninhabited area, the earth. It was lamb-like, peaceful and docile. In fact, it had two horns like a lamb. And so we understand this is the American bison. John the Revelator wouldn't have known that. The horns stand for the two principles it was founded on. Civil freedom is one horn. Religious freedom is the other horn. America was founded on these twin principles of freedom because the people who went there, the Pilgrim Fathers who fled from the United States of Europe, were tired of being persecuted by the Church of Rome. And so they set up their nation as a bastion of civil freedom, of secular freedom, and also of freedom of religion and freedom from religion. This second beast was lamb-like, it was peaceful and docile, and it arose around 1798 when Pope Pius VI went into captivity. Did you know it was in 1776 that America declared her independence? Obviously, the government attitude must change before this prophecy can be fulfilled. But since God predicts that it will do so, there's no question about that it will actually happen, friends. How could America go from a peaceful lamb-like beast into a dragon? Friends, I think we've seen over the last few years that America has become a world superpower, especially since 9-11, it has been able to go into any country unopposed and win the war. Friends, America's also spoken like a dragon because it's reduced civil and religious freedoms. It's also no longer a strong Protestant nation. If you study its Congress, its Senate, and also its Supreme Court, you will be surprised to find that the majority of the people there are professing the religion of the Church of Rome. And so the first beast is the sea beast coming out of Europe. It's the Church of Rome. The second beast is the land beast that copies it. And this is none other than the United States of America. Now, let me ask you a question. Do the time periods overlap? The Pope was taken captive on February 15, 1798. When did the United States of America become a nation? They became a nation just a little bit before that on the 1st of March, 1789. So one is going down in 1798 and one is coming up in 1789. Isn't that amazing? God's word comes true. Question 18, what two tragic things does this second beast cause people to do in Revelation 13 and verse 12? And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Friends, what tragic thing does this second beast cause the people to have to do to worship the first beast, the sea beast, and to receive a mark in the hand or in their foreheads? I know some versions say on, but it is more correct to say the mark is in. If it's on, you could be held down 
and stamped or marked against your will and God will not allow that to be happened because it means that you would be lost. America will lead out in forcing people to receive the mark of the beast. This magnificent country will soon repudiate religious freedom, will force people into false worship. Question 19, how will the second beast convince people they should listen to him? Revelation 13, 13 and 14. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Friends, this will remind people of what Elijah did on Mount Carmel, bringing fire down. And they will say this is a sign that this is truly the power of God. So he deceives the world. He does great wonders and makes fire come down from heaven. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of of the first beast saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. How will the second beast, that is the United States of America, convince people they should listen to him and he recommends the first beast, the Church of Rome. He will deceive them by the means of those miracles which he had power to do. Friends, you and I know there's amazing technologies that we don't even know about that will soon be unleashed on planet Earth. Question 20, to whom will this second beast make an image? Revelation 13 and verse 14. And deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast that had the uh, wound and did live. So friends, to whom will this second beast make an image? He'll make an image to the first beast, the one that was wounded but did live. Friends, I want to take a moment to break away from the lesson and just share with you about this image to the beast. I want you to have a look on the screen at these two buildings. I want to ask you a question as you look at them. The first one is the Roman Catholic Church's headquarters, the Vatican, Rome and Italy. The second one is the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. in the United States of America. DC stands for District of Columbia. So friends, are there any architectural similarities you can see here? Can you see there are two domes? Can you see that there are two couplers? So isn't this interesting? The two buildings are very much alike. We have the old beast, which is the Church of Rome. We have the new beast, which is the new Rome, which is the United States of America. How can one be an image of the other? Well, friends, the old beast, first and foremost, is a church. Yes, it's a religious power. But secondly, did you know it's a state? Friends, Vatican City is an area and a sovereign state of 108.7 acres. And if you sit on the front steps of the Vatican and you send a postcard and you post it there in that precinct, it will be stamped Vatican City, which is not a part of the nation of Italy. It is a separate state. They have their own ambassadors to the Pope in all the countries of the world. Friends, this is also not just a religious power, but it's a state or secular power. Meanwhile, the new beast, the new room, the United States of America is first and foremost a state, a secular power, but we are told it is going to become a religious power and enforce worship to the first beast. Friends, what are we seeing here? We are seeing a mirror image. The new beast power 
which is the new Rome, the United States of America, has become a mirror image to the old beast, the old Rome, the Church of Rome in Italy. Friends, it's interesting, isn't it, that the dragon controls the first beast and he also controls the second beast. Have a look at Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. So in summarizing, what have we said? An image is a copy. The first beast supported false worship by the arm of the state and persecuted and killed those who refused to comply. Meanwhile, the second beast will do the same. We actually see omens of such things in the uniting of church and government leaders to enforce religious morality to stem the tide of evil in our decaying society. They're going to go back to God. Their motives were very good, but forced worship is always evil. Forced prayer in public schools and forced Sunday blue laws can be dangerous for the same reason. So, friends, the second beast will utilise boycott and death threats and coercion to force people into line. So Revelation 13, 15, 16 and 17. The image is the union of the church and the state with forced worship. I want you to remember this point. God does not force our worship or our obedience. In love, our God always gives us the freedom of choice. Remember that God is a God of love, not of force and coercion. That never comes from him. We're in section seven of eight, God's people lovingly obey. Question 21, what did the disciples say about whether we should obey God or man in Acts 5.29? Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. What did the disciples say about whether we should obey God or men? They told us that God's laws and serving God always comes before the commandments of men. And Jesus reminded us in Matthew 15, 9, in vain do they worship me. They're wasting their time, Jesus said, worshiping me because they're teaching for doctrines or teachings from the Bible, not the commandments of God, but what? The commandments of men. These are the laws that men make and change and alter and abolish and then bring back. Question 22, what can I do to make certain I will not receive the mark of the beast? This is very, very important. We go to Revelation 14 and verse 12. John writes, here is the patience of the saints. It would be better translated, here are the saints. Here are God's last day people who endure. The word patience is better translated. Here are the enduring saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and they have the what? The faith of Jesus. What can I do to make certain I will not receive the mark of the beast to be in God's last day church, his last day people, the last day remnant church, and be amongst those who keep the seventh day Sabbath, the seal of God, and do not receive the mark of the beast. They keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, 9 to 11 warns against receiving the mark of the beast. Verse 12 tells what the victorious saints do to avoid the mark. They actually keep God's commandments and have Jesus' faith. Praise God, it's Jesus' faith that makes the miracle of commandment keeping possible. 
Why faith in Jesus' indwelling presence is the key. Jesus fulfills God's commands in me by his miracle working power. See Romans 8 verses 3 and 4. Our last heading is 8 of 8, God's last warning message. Friends, God's last warning message to the world, Revelation 14, 6 to 12, is the three angels' message and includes the following. The first angel's message in verse 7 tells us to worship the creator. What does this involve? Verse 7 says, it means that I keep the sign or mark of his creatorship, his Sabbath. For emphasis, verse 7 even quotes part of the Sabbath commandment, that he made heaven and earth and the sea. So it's we are worshipping God as creator. See Revelation 14, 7 and Exodus 20, verse 11, which, of course, is the fourth commandment. God's last warning message, the second angel's message, which is this. Do not receive the mark of the beast in Revelation 14, 9 and 10 which means I must not accept and receive the devil's counterfeit sign of Sunday sacredness. Friends, it is God who gives us these two solemn warnings. What could be more sobering? Satan, who hates God, asks for my allegiance through the adoption of his mark, which will be enforced through coercion. Meanwhile, Jesus, my saviour, asks for my allegiance through the adoption of his sign or mark which is his seal, his holy seventh-day Sabbath, which is the seal of God. So we either have the seal of God or we have the mark of the beast. Friends, is it now clear to you that a person who receives the mark of the beast is lost? Friends, I think it's eminently clear we don't want to receive the mark of the beast. Question 24, when you decide to accept Jesus and fully follow him, what happens? We go to Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, the words of Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Friends, Jesus promises us peace, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you decide to fully accept Jesus and fully follow him, what happens? You'll get rest in your souls. You'll have a peace that passeth all understanding for the yoke of Jesus to keep his seventh day Sabbath and his 10 commandments is easy and his burden is light. Deciding to follow Jesus fully and accept his holy sign brings rest, peace, joy, happiness and blessings which are indescribably glorious. Friends, it's one of the most exciting decisions of a lifetime. The word Sabbath means rest. Friends, did you see God's name is in the word Sabbath, Abba? It means Father. It means Daddy, that intimate word that Jesus used about the Father, Abba, Father. So the word Sabbath has the Father's name in it. It is the seal of God. Friends, accepting God's Sabbath sign brings rest and release from the burdens of life. Such blessed relief can come from no other source. Question 25, Jesus is waiting at the door of your heart for your answer. Revelation 3.20, will you decide now to receive his glorious sign as evidence that you accept him as 
your blessed Redeemer. Friends, before you write your answer there, I want to share with you something very, very special. It's a quote. It's actually a summary of Revelation Seminar number 19 of all that we've learned tonight. It's an amazing quote. Let me share it with you. The Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty, for it is the point of truth, especially controverted, meaning becomes controversial and challenged. When the final test shall be brought to bear upon men, then the line of distinction will be drawn between those who serve God and those who serve him not. While the observance of the false Sabbath in compliance with the law of the state, contrary to the fourth commandment, will be an avowal of allegiance to a power that is in opposition to God. The keeping of the true Sabbath in obedience to God's law is an evidence of loyalty to the creator. While one class by accepting the sign of submission to earthly powers received the mark of the beast, the other choosing the token of allegiance to divine authority received the seal of God. Friends, that's from Ellen G. White's amazing book. Let me recommend it. It's called the Great Controversy, and you will find that quote on page 605. I think it makes very clearly all that we've said in this particular lesson. So, friends, there's a choice between the seal of God and the mark of the beast. It's a very simple choice between keeping the day of the sun Sunday, the first day of the week, which is being created by man. It's a law created by mankind. And God's seventh day Sabbath, which has his name in it, which is the seal of God. We come back to question 25, our last question in the lesson. Jesus is waiting at the door of your heart for you to answer as in Revelation 3.20. Will you now decide to receive the glorious sign of his Sabbath as evidence that you accept him as your blessed Savior and Redeemer? Friends, I'm hoping and praying that your answer will be yes and that you have chosen to receive the awesome and amazing seal of God and turn your back on the mark of the beast. Friends, tonight we've chosen between the words of God and the words that man has written and rewritten, changed and brought back. I believe the choice is very easily made. Let's finish as we started our session. We're looking at our discovery points in Revelation seminar number 19. Number one, we asked what powers are represented by the two beasts in Revelation 13. I hope you can answer that now that we have reviewed the lesson with you. Well, the first beast, number one, is, of course, the Church of Rome, the seventh head that received a deadly wound. And the second beast, which is the land beast, is the United States of America. The first beast is the Church of Rome. It comes out of the United States of Europe. It is, of course, the sea beast. The sea beast and then the land beast follows it. Well, what is the mark of the beast? I think very clearly it's been demonstrated that it is to accept man's day of worship created by man, the day of the Sunday, day of the sun Sunday, often said to be kept in honor of the resurrection, a worthy goal, but never actually recommended by scripture. So we're looking at what is the mark of the beast. It's to accept Sunday and to knowingly worship on it. Who's actually going to receive that mark? Very simply, those who refuse to accept the seal of God, 
which is his seventh day Sabbath. We're asking when is the mark revealed? Friends, the answer is not yet. It can only be when it is enforced by law and there will be a lot of coercion. Number five, what role does the seventh or fourth commandment actually play? Friends, it's very simply the seal of God, the fourth commandment versus the mark of the beast, the seventh day Sabbath versus the day of the sun, Sunday, worshipping God on the first day of the week. It's interesting, half the world worships God on the day before the seventh day Sabbath and half the day worships the Lord on the day after the seventh day Sabbath. I'm sure the enemy of souls is happy with that and very few worship between on the seventh day Sabbath. Friends, we're going now to our response questions. Question number one, if you now understand what the mark of the beast means and can see why God placed these delicate issues in signs and symbols, I'm going to ask you to place a tick in box number one. Question number two in our response questions, if you desire to follow Jesus all the way by joining his last day remnant church and also receive the seal of the living God by choosing to keep his seventh day Sabbath, I'm rejoicing with you and asking you to tick box number two. And if your decision is yes and you don't have an envelope, then please contact me and let me know. God bless you. We have five quiz questions tonight based on the lesson. They're true and false, and we will answer each one as we go. So please lock it in quickly if you are doing the quiz and sending those results to me. Question number one, Satan causes many to receive the mark of the beast, and that mark is a sign of loyalty to him. True or false? Lock your answer in now. Satan causes many to receive the mark of the beast, and the mark is a sign or a seal of loyalty to him. Lock it in. The answer is absolutely true. Number two, the mark of the beast is already placed upon many people. Is that true or false? Lock in your answer now. True or false? The mark of the beast is already placed on many people. The answer is false, friends. The mark of the beast has not been placed on people because the issue has not been made clear and it has not been enforced by law. Number three, when the law forces a person to stop buying and selling unless he has the mark of the beast, the beast mark is then received by many. Lock it in, true or false. And the answer is absolutely true. Number four, God's wrath is upon all who receive the mark of the beast. We found that was true in Revelation chapter 13 and also Revelation chapter 14. So that answer would have to be true. I think I helped you with that one, didn't I? <laughs> uh, you're lucky. Number five, the wrath of the beast is upon all those who receive the seal of God, meaning Sabbath keeping, which they have decided in their foreheads. True or false? Lock it in. And the answer is true. Give yourself a score out of five and please get those answers to me quickly. Friends, in our Revelation Seminar Wall of Truth, tonight we look very clearly at what is the mark of the beast. We also identified beast number one, beast number two, and saw how the mark comes in. So our message tonight was to worship God and not to worship the beast. In session number 20, we're going to go and learn what and where is hell. So that's lesson number 20. It's Revelation's Lake of Fire where we're going to learn the following. Is hell happening right now? Some say yes, some say no. And where does hell actually take place? 
Number three, who's actually going to burn in the lake of fire? Number four, will hell last forever throughout all eternity, being forever and ever, as the scripture says? And number five, does the teaching on hell and the lake of fire, hell fire, actually make any sense? I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit, what an amazing lesson. Your word is so clear. It's so easy to understand and it's so powerful. It's so integrative. It all matches up and joins together. The Old and New Testament come together for us in a powerful way. The books of Daniel and Revelation are amazing. How Daniel 7 dovetails with Daniel with Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 14. Father, please continue to bless us as we continue to study. If we're troubled about what we've learned tonight, I pray that you'll give us peace in our hearts, that you'll give us an answer whether this is truth or not. Thank you for the freedom to study your word. And I pray a blessing on all who will hear this message and have chosen to keep the seventh day Sabbath and receive the seal of God. And I ask your blessing on them in Jesus' powerful name. Let all the people say, Amen. I want to thank you so much for being with us in Revelation seminar session number 19, The Beast of Revelation 13 and The Mark of the Beast. So thank you so much for being with us and I'll say goodbye and God bless. See you for session 20 on The Lake of Fire. Thank you and bye for now. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA. All one word, that's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.